Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. October is nearly here. Finally. While I'll miss the warmth of the summer, those chill evenings and the rustle of falling leaves already has me firmly in the Halloween spirit. You know what else has me in the Halloween spirit? The promise of a near-endless supply of terrifying tales headed our way. We've got some exceptional tales planned to fuel your nightmares this month, but because you can never have too much horror this time of year, our friends over at the Wrong Station podcast also have one hell of a treat starting this weekend. As I mentioned last week, they've taken on the frightening feat of releasing 31 stories in 31 days for the month of October. A weird and disturbing tale to fill your gullet each and every day of the month. Is it a sign of their questionable sanity? Probably. Is it something that'll cast a looming shadow, making each day of the season darker than the last? Almost certainly. Is it something you absolutely should not miss? Without question. You can follow the Wrong Station podcast wherever you listen to Tales to Terrify or check them out online at wrongstation.com. If you're like me, you want to make the most of this terrible time of year and pack your ears with as much terror as you can handle. Speaking of feeding ragged terrors into your ears, let's dish out some of our own, shall we? Our first story for the evening comes from Akis Lenardos. 
Akis is a writer of weird nightmares and the occasional epic tale. He's also a biomedical AI scientist and maybe a human. Originally from Greece, he constantly hops across countries as his career and exploration urges refuse to let him settle. Find his fiction at Apex, The Dread Machine, The Martian, and visit his website for other dark surprises. Link is in the show notes. Children of the Night, join me for Akis the Narthos's Inc., first published in The Mall magazine, September 2023. It started as a moldy splotch on one corner of the living room ceiling, soon expanding into a long crescent like the smile of a goddamn Cheshire cat. I squeeze a mop on it and rub until my muscles ache behind my elbows. The mop gets black and smudgy and it smells funny, like fresh concrete. I call the handyman. He says he'll come tomorrow. As I hang up, I hear the elevator mid-whir outside my apartment. It only goes as high as this, though there is one extra floor above, accessible only by stairs. It's where Oswald lives. I see him from the peephole. He's carrying a massive oil barrel. Black paint for his art, I assume. He's dragging the barrel up the spiral stairs, struggling to twist it around the tight corners. Perhaps he needs help. I grab the handle. Pause. Why should I help him? He never bothers with my problems, barely even talks to me these days. I push the door open anyway. Do you need help, Oswald? Uh, no bother. I've got it, he says, barely glancing in my direction. When had I become invisible to him? What's that you've got over there? I ask. His mouth curls into a smirk. Just some supplies. I did some painting the other day after a long time. It kind of flowed out of me. Maybe you can take a look sometime? That's nice, he says. He doesn't even hear me. Doesn't even look at me. The message in his eyes and in his tone is clear. Why is that loser still talking to me? The genius polymath. An archaeologist with a passion for cartoons. Successful in both. Ever since he uncovered that jar from the buried ziggurat in Peru, he'd been the buzz of the town. Who has time to even glance at his childhood friend with all the media attention and busy life, right? Who has time to waste on a loser? Whatever. I don't care. Well, enjoy, I say, and I retreat to my apartment. I lay on the couch and stare at the ceiling. A screech moves along it and I imagine something sharp and heavy slowly being dragged against the floor above. My brain hurts, like cold spoons slowly being dragged beneath my temples. The Cheshire Cat's smile curls wider on the ceiling. The handyman crawls through the scuttle attic between my room and Oswald's, 
The scuttle hole releases a wave of stench, like someone had tossed rotten fruit into a bowl full of wet cement. I feel sorry for the handyman. I sit back on the coffee-stained couch and turn on the TV. Show's about to start. Oswald's Fermi the Bouncy Rat. The show that brought black-and-white cartoons back in fashion. I'll never understand how Oswald managed it. He followed his dreams all the way to Wonderland. Not that I'm jealous of him. The pharmacy pays the bills, so I never stress about money. I'm happy with my life. The handyman crawls back out an hour later. Says he couldn't find any leaks from the boiler, and whatever the hell it was, it's all over the scuttle, but it's even worse above. Must be something from upstairs. I have to figure it out with Oswald. So I'll be the one speaking to him again, begging for his attention. I can't remember when we stopped being friends. It happened like a slow shifting of seasons. From best friends, to occasional updates on each other's life, to a polite greeting in the common areas, reduced to stranger neighbors. He usually comes home around 5.30. I'll have to think about how to phrase my request casually. I hate needy people. I don't want to give that impression. I spend some time at the coffee table with the TV on, working on a cartoon rabbit sketch I started some six months ago and never got to finish. Not much of a point to it. The lines come out all awkward again. The eyes don't match. I remember the first time my father found me painting. Good hobby. Keeps the eye sharp. But don't do it for a living. Pharmacy will set you up for life. People always need their pills. He never really understood. Not like Oswald's parents did. They paid his tuition through art school, talked up his paintings every chance they'd get. It's different if you have someone cheering you on. But he was lucky. I was not. Simple as that. The elevator whirs. The familiar jingle of Oswald's bulky keyring follows. I reach the door, wrap my fingers around the cold handle, stay there for a long moment. All the opening phrases I stored up seem clunky and awkward. His footsteps taper away up the stairs. I push the door open. He's halfway up the staircase, hand on the railings. Hey, Oswald? I'll need your help one of these days. Something wrong with the ceiling. Found out yesterday the problem comes from your place. He turns. Slowly. Precisely. Like a goddamn clockwork soldier. There's something along his neck. A dark scar or a tattoo half-hidden by his collar. Reminds me of a black snake's tail. That's new. He looks at me for a long while with glazed, distant eyes. Then says, Want to hear what I found out yesterday? A scripture from the jar of a cat. His voice gets lower. Taste the ink. Scar yourself with the mark of gods. Is he making fun of me? I don't speak whatever language it is you're speaking. There's something wrong with the ceiling. It's full of mold. And the problem comes from your place. Could you bring a handyman to figure it out? It's a mess on my side. Mayans had such fascinating gods. They'd paint themselves in a cat's name. They were his canvas. I don't fucking care. Right. Good job, Oswald. Well, I'll be around if you need someone to talk to about it. But 
please call a handyman? Mayans would put a plank on the newborn's foreheads, Oswald continued. Press it tight with a bandage and leave it there to elongate their skulls as they grow. A cot had more room to paint that way. I also found that out yesterday. Or maybe a week ago? Time slips lately. What the hell is his problem? Does he want to make me mad? That's interesting. Please take care of this mold issue, though. I can call him for you if you prefer. He smiles, and the smile reminds me of the Oswald I used to know as a kid, when he'd run so fast I couldn't catch up, and he'd turn around with a grin to tell me how amazingly bad I was at everything. I'll take care of it, man. Don't worry about it. The migraines are getting worse. My skull bones have been wobbling like cymbals all day, and I snapped at an old lady at the pharmacy. Good customer, too. Pretty sure I lost her forever. I toss out my shoes as I walk into my apartment, rub my temples as I trudge to the kitchen for tea. I avoid looking at the ceiling. It's been four days, and I haven't heard back from Oswald. He's so busy with his precious work, I doubt he remembers what I asked him to do. When I saw him the other day, he didn't even acknowledge my presence. Something off with him, too. Mouth all grimy with something dark. Looked like a kid that had gotten into the chocolate box. Perhaps adulthood won't allow him time to wipe his ass, either. I take the tea to the living room, smell the jasmine to calm my nerves, never looking up, never looking at the half-finished sketch on the coffee table. Too tired to finish it today. A random thought strikes me. I whip out my phone and look up the words, Taste the ink. Mark yourself with the scar of gods. Or was it scar first, mark second? Neither gives me any result. What was that god's name? Akat? I looked that up. No wonder Oswald comes up with creepy cartoons if he's into that stuff. What he said the other day is true. Mayans were deforming their own babies. The richer they were, the more grotesque the deformation to stand out. Blood offerings, human sacrifice. It was all viewed as nourishment for the gods. Gods cannot take a life. They can only devour a freshly killed soul. A droplet spills into my tea from above, suffusing the clear yellow with black. I look up. Lumps of the black mold have bloated out of the ceiling. They remind me of wasp nests. I'll give that bastard a good yelling tomorrow. Too tired now. I fall asleep on the couch, Fermi the bouncy rat playing on the TV screen. I like the noise. I can't sleep in the quiet. Fermi's cartoon spring sounds soothe me, and I drift asleep feeling a tickle in my left ear, like a tiny tongue. It's some alien hour past midnight when I awake with a rank, oily taste in the back of my throat. Something skitters down my arm and away with bouncy sounds. Boing, boing, boing. The sounds vanish toward the exit. My left ear feels cold. I touch it. Wet with something slimy, I turn the lamp on. My arm is covered in tiny spots, as if a cockroach stepped on black paint before having a stroll from my wrist to my elbow. Black splotches all over the floor, one on the TV screen. There's a crack on the glass nearly as big as my fist, the shards spread out on the floor in front. A migraine hits, my forehead burns, 
I tilt my head back. Above, the wasp blobs of mold seem to be pulsating. I call Oswald. The phone rings back of Evaldi season I cannot place, though it's not winter. My throat feels parched. I smack my lips and eye the cup on my coffee table. Idly, I take a sip of the cold tea. Tastes sweet as honey. I don't recall adding any sugar. Oswald doesn't respond. My brain throbs. I swear it's trying to escape my damn skull. Screw this. The black splotches lead out of my apartment, upstairs to Oswald's place. With every dazed step up the stairs, my eyes seem to wobble in their sockets, burning all over. His door is ajar. A thick, musky haze permeates from within like blackened shower vapors. It smells like carbonized soot and feels like grease on my skin as I enter the living room. Have I walked into a dream? Or was I trapped in a cycle of dreams for weeks now? In a comatose state, unable to wake up? Oswald? Oswald, what? I taste coal and shut my mouth, letting out a burst of muffled coughs. It's a meandering corridor to reach the living room. Something punctures my foot and I let out a yelp. Pull my sock off, cursing, and squeeze out a splinter of wood and a sanguine little marble from the toe. As I rub the rough outline of the skin, I capture oily black snowflakes between finger and toe and spread smudge on both. I cut my mouth with both hands and yell again. Oswald! Man, what the hell? Didn't you hear me scream? My ceiling looks like a Jackson Pollock of mold and it won't go away. I step into the living room. What have you been- his body is surrounded by lit candles. Tattoos have spread to his face in a spider web. His eyes are egg whites lying in charcoal mud skin. The black liquid slowly spreads inside the eyes. Prank. He'll jump scare me now. Jolt awake and shift his eyes. Oswald was always up to mischief as a child. Only we weren't children anymore. His chest still heaves. He's breathing. The jar of a cot is beside him, over full with the black liquid of art. The ink surface balloons in and out of the jar and pulses, as if it's also breathing. The tattoos shift on Oswald's body. On his belly, a black dog takes shape, chasing a black cat as a squiggly line beneath them undulates to give the illusion of movement in space. The cat pulls out a hammer, smashes the dog's head, laughs in a goofy gurgle. On Oswald's face, black stripes curve to spirals, merge, stretch out to two curved lines that form between them the outlines of buck teeth. The sketched mouth opens. A low, husky voice comes from it, maybe of some creature suffering from pneumonia. Taste the ink. Scar yourself with the mark of gods. What? The mouth bulges out. A black balloon at Oswald's cheek. Buck teeth, pointy ears, Pac-Man-shaped irises. It bounces off him. It's Fermi the bouncy rat. You want it, it says as it springs from Oswald's solar plexus, as it bounces off walls, spreading the ink. You want the blessings others have. Why should others have all the luck, while your dreams are slowly dying? He did it. 
Why not you? Taste the ink, then sacrifice him. The splotches the rat leaves on the walls spread out in a spider web, forming the shapes I recognize from Oswald's cartoons. Senti the zebra centipede skitters up to the ceiling, its tiny bow legs clacking like notes on a marimba. Is this the source of Oswald's success? Has he stumbled upon a hidden occult treasure that somehow fell through the cracks of human history? I know I should be afraid, but I'm not. My chest pounds with excitement. Whatever happens next, how can it be worse than the listlessness of my mundane one-bedroom apartment life, filled with taxes and pills and cranky old ladies and rusted dreams? What are you? What did you do to him? The cartoons twist on the walls. The cat from before walks up the stairs of a ziggurat, its head elongates, longer with every step. And as its head grows, diamond rings materialize around its loony feline hands. Dark blood spills from its mouth. The cat reaches the top, lets out another goofy gurgle. Its head explodes in a splash of ink. You're a cot, I say. The creature does not respond. I inhale deeply, taking in the oily scent, tasting charcoal and honey beneath my tongue. My heart drums with every boing of that rat, with every gurgle laughter and xylophone skittering of the cartoons on the walls. It's like they spring against my cranium, crawl along my spine. And here's the strangest thing. I enjoy it. The migraine is gone, transformed into a pleasant stupor of intoxication, like those knights pub-crawling around town and having just the right amount to drink. Not too much, certainly not too little. A ticket straight to Wonderland. Oswald lies in a pool of his own avarice, ink mingled with bubbling saliva spilling out of his mouth. He failed. He was the real loser all along. My mouth curls into a grin, and my mirth comes bursting out in a cackle. For the first time in years, I feel alive. I grab the knife, dip it into the jar, then out. Delicious molten tar drips from the blade. I will never end up like him. I'll make that goddamn wonderland mine, baby. I bring the blade's spine close to my mouth and lick. That was Acus Linarthos's Ink, as read by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He has previously recorded for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and the Cursed Inn podcast. He can be found on Twitter at Aleph Baker. Thank you, Anthony. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Our second tale tonight comes from Jan Stinchcomb. Jan Stinchcomb is the author of Verushka, The Kelping, The Blood Trail, and Find the Girl. Her stories have appeared in Bourbon Pen, The Horror is Us, and Menacing Hedge, among other places. A Pushcart nominee, she is featured in Best Microfiction 2020 and The Best Small Fictions 2018 and 2021. She lives in Southern California with her family and is an associate fiction editor for Atticus Review. Find her at janstinchcomb.com or on Twitter at Jan Stinchcomb. Listen with me, children of the night, to Jan Stinchcomb's The Precode Girl, a Tales to Terrify original. Clothes are her passion. Clothing and costumes, 
She loves the feel of the fabric against her fingertips, all the textures and colors, as well as the cycle of fashion, everything old and new at once. She comes to USC to study costume design and goes broke immediately. But the man has already appeared, offering shelter and something she mistakes for love. Zach is cheap, despite his wealth and professional stature. The old sofa in the cottage where he keeps her is a discarded piece of furniture from his married life. She learns he has a child one day when she finds a little plastic octopus toy under the table. A King Kong poster hangs in the living room, and this image, a giant ape clutching a crushed red propeller plane in one hand, and Fay Ray in the other, ties them together. They both grew up poor, loving movies, especially old Hollywood. Zack tells her that when he was little, he would watch King Kong every night, hoping somehow the ape would make his way back to Skull Island, his home. She trusts him because of that story. Sex is powerful and intoxicant, more dangerous than money. She shudders to think of the things he makes her do, his whispered promises. He tells her she's hot, calls her candy. She isn't candy, she is Candace, too old for a childhood nickname. She recalls a recent birthday card from her parents in Texas. 23. I guess I'm what you call a pre-coat girl, she says on the night Zach kills her. This is after they've fought about her missed period. His temper is ferocious, so she changes the subject to cinema. He is always quizzing her on her film history. Yes, she has seen all the important movies. This is her work. She knows the costumes by heart. And of course she knows what pre-code means. Strong women, forbidden topics. She sees a long line of high-kicking chorus girls in black and white. It's Zach's idea to dress up and go out to the beach with a bottle of champagne. She hopes, and possibly, that he will tell her he's leaving his wife, the beautiful Emily. She does not like champagne, but downs three glasses. When the bottle crashes against her skull, she can hear Fay Ray screaming in her pink evening gown as the ape's fingers close around her. At least Fay Ray gets top billing forever. She wakes at dawn on wet sand in a ruined dress. She rises and stumbles forward, at one point bending over to expel seawater from her lungs, and then continues on the long journey across the sand and past the row of tents lining the boardwalk. A young woman, busy spreading out watercolors for sale, looks up in alarm. Oh my God, what, what happened to you? She remembers a, a blanket of darkness and relentless waves pulling her into the ocean. I got hurt, she says. It's not a lie. You need to be careful out here. Don't let the cops see you. They've been doing sweeps. You're sure you're okay? She nods and walks on. She is not in pain. She doesn't even feel the cold, but she knows she should not be out in public. The few people walking around at this hour stare at her. 
Her face feels as though it does not belong to her. She crosses the boardwalk and makes a right turn at the mural with the purple-headed figure. This is the way Zach likes to go, crossing Speedway onto a side street of pricey beach houses. When she reaches Pacific Avenue, she turns left. The cottage, the closest thing she has to a home, is on the next corner. She will lock herself in there and come up with a plan. The mere sight of the cottage, beige with a white door and sea-green trim around the windows and roofline, is reassuring. She finds the spare key in its usual place, under a heavy planter near the trash cans. Her fingers are so stiff she can, she can barely open the door. But once inside, she goes straight to the bathroom where she peels off her wet dress and steps into the shower. The water pounds against her cracked skull. What's happening to me? She asks, her voice echoing. The mirror shows her gray skin and two eyes ringed in black. A trace of her favorite lipstick remains, but looks grotesque. From habit, she finds her part and combs through her fine blonde hair. There is one clean hand towel hanging in the bathroom, but it is big enough for her to dry her small body. The cottage doesn't have a landline. Even if she could find her phone and call an ambulance, she has no money, no insurance. And what would she say? She is afraid to accuse Zach of anything. She looks through the bedroom closet and finds only Zach's clothes. One good jacket, a couple of nice shirts. His trench coat hangs inside a dry cleaning bag, but where are her things? All her dresses and shoes, her purse collection, her bikini. He wants no trace of her. She picks her dress up off the bathroom floor and washes all the sand out of it. It is a long navy gown with a low neckline. Her last dress, her only dress. She hangs it up to dry and ties the hand towel around her waist. A knock at the door makes her jump. Could it be the police? She waits for the knocker to go away and then peeks outside. There is a flyer from the neighborhood council tucked under the welcome mat. She snatches it up and locks the door behind her. A greenish liquid dribbles down the side of her head. She feels her wrists and throat for a pulse. Nothing. She wants to let nature run its course. What is there to fear if she's as good as dead? Surely this is one way of dealing with the demands of life in L.A. She doesn't need food or water, a toilet, housing. There is no reason why she can't survive outside, but she prefers to dwell in the cottage. From time to time, she has to get out. The sun is blinding, searing, but she solves that problem by stealing a pair of tortoiseshell sunglasses to hide her horrible ringed eyes. There are no more days, and she likes this. She doesn't care about time, which seems to have forgotten her. As for sleep, she often drifts in a, a dreamlike state in her bedroom in the cottage, but she wouldn't call that sleep. One day, she catches sight of herself in the reflective windows of a parked car as she roams the streets of Venice. She stops and removes her sunglasses. She looks like a, a ghoul, an addict. People are afraid of her and avert their eyes after one quick, horrified glance. She retreats to the cottage and waits for the sun. 
that murderous ball in the sky to go down. The nighttime is always better, so she ventures out at dusk. She needs another dress. The navy gown has never really recovered from its baptism in salt water, and the fabric doesn't hang right. She finds a place nearby that sells women's clothing, but nothing like the vintage dresses she prefers. She enters with her eyes down, and then she walks around, touching different items and pretending to check the price tags. She grabs a black dress and approaches the mirror, and at that moment, a woman's voice rings out in mourning. Can I help you with that? After coming this far, she is determined to get to that mirror, but the woman rushes toward her, and, and it is the woman's face, wincing in disgust, that she sees when she reaches the glass. It takes her a second to realize the girl standing there with the black dress in her hands is her. She has the same gray skin, but now her hair hangs like a wig, lifeless. With her sunglasses and ruined dress, she looks like an extra in a horror film. You're not... You shouldn't be here. I'll call an ambulance. The woman says, tripping as she hurries back to the counter. A customer comes out of the changing room and gasps. Two other people make a beeline for the door. She drops the dress and flees. All the way back to the cottage, she keeps her head down. One guy whistles as she walks past, but it isn't a compliment. She wants nothing more to do with people. Her own reflection is sufficient terrible company. This metropolis is famous for its murdered women, but they don't usually walk around like she does. They exist as stories or shocking photographs. Back at the cottage, she makes a decision. That's it. I'm done. She marches to the kitchen in search of a knife. There isn't a good one, but it will have to do. How hard could it be? She cuts into a large vein on the underside of her wrist. No pain. Good. No blood, either. Just a, a thick black puddle on her gray skin. She will never die at this rate. She puts the sunglasses, her prized post-death acquisition, on the table next to the toy octopus, then locks up and returns the key to its hiding place. She takes a back-alley route to the boardwalk, passing trash bins and run-down properties. There are people everywhere, both the tourists who will soon depart and the long line of tents that move only when forced. The Pacific booms mournfully in her direction, encouraging her to approach. It is hard to walk across the sand, but this feels right, like she is a child again at the beach with her family. The water is neither cold nor warm as she has lost all sense of temperature. Good. As the waves cover her feet and ankles, she is stirred to say something. Sorry. Goodbye. Good luck. I love you. She doesn't know who she is talking to. Perhaps all the unlucky people in L.A. Perhaps to herself. Her big navy gown grows heavy as she trudges into the water. Surely the weight of the fabric will help? She knows the classic story about a wronged girl drowning in a dress. She keeps walking until she loses her footing. And then finally, the water overwhelms her and carries her away. She floats.
She forces herself to go under and take water into her lungs. She can't see anything. She can't hear anything. She resurfaces. She tries her best to drown. When the sun comes up behind her on the other side of the metropolis, she gives up. She searches the boardwalk until she finds the woman with the watercolors. Hey, it's me again. I was wondering if I could borrow some clothes. You look worse than ever, the woman says before ducking into her tent. She is only gone for a second, but comes back out with a long black halter dress. I never wear this, or I could give you shorts and a t-shirt, but this looks like it will fit you. Thank you so much, she says as she grabs the dress. She changes quickly, right there on the street, before the woman can stop her. Remember what I said about the cops? I wasn't kidding. I'm sorry. You should throw that old dress away, and you need to take care of that cut. There's this guy who has a medical kit. I can go find him if you'll watch my stuff. Her wrist? She had forgotten about it. She looks down and sees an open black wound against gray skin. She does not want to imagine what her face looks like. It's all right. Medicine won't help me. Lots of people don't like to take their meds, but you could get an infection and that will kill you. Really, it's okay. Thank you so much for your kindness. She must return to the cottage before the sun gets any higher. She'll lock herself in there and then come up with yet another plan. Already, people are staring at her. She ditches the dress and the first overflowing trash cans she sees. What about shoes? The woman calls from the middle of the boardwalk, where she stands holding a pair of flip-flops up in the air. You shouldn't walk around barefoot. She waves back and heads home. Such generosity. One person bashes your skull in, and the other gives you her clothes without asking for anything in return. The fresh dress makes her feel a little bit better. Back at the cottage, she retrieves the key, opens the door, and goes straight to the bathroom mirror to check the damage. Her face has turned darker, a more uniform shade of gray. Her eyes, once blue, are now dark, almost black. She will have to take another shower to remove all the sand from her hair. Someone knocks at the door, but this time it's faint and tentative. She has been expecting the police to come searching. She hopes someone, somewhere, is looking for her, missing her. But now she hears the knocker opening the door with a key. God Almighty. She flies to the bedroom closet, the only place to hide, and crouches in the corner behind the big dry-cleaning bag. Someone with a soft footfall has entered the cottage. It isn't Zack. She knows the sound of his body moving through space. She hears whoever it is stepping around in the little front room. There isn't much to look at. They move on to the kitchen, where they remain for a while opening the refrigerator and all the cupboards and drawers. What are they looking for? Then it's onto the bathroom. She hears a metallic scrape as they pull back the shower curtain. What did she do with the hand towel? Oh, she should have been more careful. They're in the bedroom now. The moment of truth. They rip apart the bed. The closet is next. What should she do? 
rush out like a monster and scare them, then flee the premises? She remembers hiding like this in childhood, playing a game, and how impossible it was to stifle her giggles. She feels the approaching footsteps of the intruder. She looks up. In a gap between her killer's clothes, she sees a pretty brunette with brown eyes. Emily. This is the wife, a well-known actress, reaching out to touch her husband's clothes. She presses her face against one of his shirts. This is it. Emily will tear through the closet and expose the living corpse crouching in the corner. And then what will happen? Candace's heart swells with emotion. The two of them need to talk woman to woman. Emily heads back to the kitchen. Candace creeps out of the closet and pauses in the bedroom doorway before tiptoeing forward. Jealousy flares as she stares at Emily's big ass and tiny waist. They are complete opposites. Emily is a voluptuous Betty Page type, whereas she is a waif, barely there. Nobody special. Why would any man choose Candace over Emily? Candace retreats to the bedroom in the nick of time, just missing Emily on her way back to the living room, where she picks up the toy octopus. Then she starts sobbing. It's now or never, Candace tells herself. Come on, speak. She glides out to the living room, but before she can open her mouth, Emily screams, the blood draining from her face so fast that Candace thinks she has killed her. The air glitters with an electric charge. She isn't sure how to begin. I guess you know who I am. Jesus Christ. She waits, partly to let Emily take in her words, partly because she is only now learning to author her own life. The truth rises like a secret sun inside of her. This is my place now. Put the key on the table. Emily stands, spellbound, her lips quivering. Take the octopus, take his clothes, take that damn poster. I don't want to see him again. I don't want anyone bothering me. From here on out, everything will be on my terms. Emily obeys and slips the octopus into her purse. Then she races back to the bedroom to gather Zach's clothes. As she leaves, balancing the clothes on top of the King Kong poster, she asks, Should I tell Zach to stop worrying? I mean, it's not like you can press charges in your current state. Press charges. The actress cannot catch up. It is too much to grasp. She will spend the rest of her life trying to understand that one moment in the cottage but she will leave Zach later that same afternoon. Candace enacts her first great haunt. She opens her mouth and releases a wicked, mocking laugh before slamming the door on Emily's back. Something shifts in the universe. Candace's body falls to the floor without her at last. Later, as the moon waxes and wanes, Candace often visits the watercolorist, who no longer lives out of a tent, but still sells her paintings in the same spot. 
It is customary for Candace to appear at dusk. One evening, she notices a painting of herself, a lone woman in a navy gown standing on the beach under a dark purple sky. Who is the woman in this painting? A prospective customer asks. Oh, she was one of the survivors out here. At least I hope so. I lost track of her, but I always expect her to come back. Were you friends? The watercolorist smiles. I'd like to think so. She sets the painting on an easel. She can feel a sail coming on. I really love it, that sky. Could you hold it for me while I walk around? Of course. Candace stands close enough to the artist to leave a cold kiss on her smooth cheek. Then she floats up to the painting and slips inside it, disappearing under the familiar purple sky. That was Jan Stinchcomb's The Pre-Code Girl, as read by Michelle Kane. Michelle is from the Kansas City metropolitan area. She has a dulcimer and a bodron that she doesn't have time to play because she spends her time working in a cube farm and being a mom to her son and their Labrador. And, of course, narrating stories when she has the chance. She can be found on Twitter at ShellDavis72. Thank you, Michelle. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Lessel Baxter, Paul Belcher, Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, and Orion D. Higra, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Podchaser, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating or review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs, so you can show those around you just how twisted you truly are. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, Crystal Hammond, Spencer Desparty, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. 
Join us again next week as we delve deep into darkness with more Tales to Terrify. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.